Chapter 17. The Rejoicing Tithe The Rejoicing Tithe was to be paid from all the increase of the land, but not from the increase of the herds and flocks. The firstborn were to be used in lieu of such a tithe. Deuteronomy 14, 22-23 In addition, the fruits that came from all the manner of trees that had been planted for food were to be taxed as part of the Rejoicing Tithe. This tax on the fruit was not to be paid each year, but only in the fourth year from the time that the tree was first planted. The entire yield of these trees was to be paid, not just a tenth. This fruit represented the firstborn of the tree, and therefore was to be paid only once. Leviticus 19.23-25 It should be understood that this tax was a firstborn tax, not a firstfruit tax. Therefore, each succeeding year after this tax was paid the tax of the firstfruits was to be paid. This tithe was to be used at Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles, or Ingathering. This feast was known as the Feast of Ingathering since it occurred at the end of the harvest season and five days after the Day of Atonement. The rejoicing tithe was to be used at Jerusalem rather than locally. The only exception to this was when God enlarged the original borders of Israel. Under such circumstances, those who lived outside of these original borders could use this tithe locally. Deuteronomy 12, 5-28 If the distance within Israel was too great to bring the tithe in its original form to Jerusalem, then it could be changed into money and this money taken to the great city. Deuteronomy 14, 24-25 Moreover, the Israelites were required by God to dwell in booths during this festival, quote, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. Leviticus 23, 43 Hence, this feast was also known as the Feast of Booths. The taxpayer and his household, plus the local Levite, stranger, and poor, were to use this tithe for rejoicing before the Lord. Deuteronomy 16, 13-15 The purpose of this rejoicing was, quote, Because the Lord thy God shall bless thee in all thine increase, and in all the works of thine hands. Verse 15 To bring to remembrance the, de the deliverance of Israel from the land of Egypt. Leviticus 23, 33-44 And to ensure that, quote, Thou mayest learn to fear the Lord thy God always. Deuteronomy 14, 23 The emphasis of this tithe is upon rejoicing. The passages in Scripture dealing with this tax, Exodus 23, 14-19, Leviticus 23, 33-44, Deuteronomy 12, 5-28, 14, 22-27, 15, 19-23, and 16, 13-15, required that it be used by the Israelites to praise the Lord with feasting and rejoicing. The Israelites were commanded by God to rejoice. They were given no option or choice in the matter. This tax was God's money, and he commanded that it be used solely for rejoicing before him. Quote, Ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 12, 12. Quote, Thou shalt eat before the Lord thy God, and thou shalt rejoice. 14.26. Quote, Thou shalt rejoice in thy feast. 16.14. This tithe was not a Levitical or poor tax. It was a, ta a tax levied by God for the sole purpose of impressing upon the hearts and minds of all Israel the requirement that they were to be joyful. Our understanding of this tithe, then, rests upon our comprehension that joy, as a legal requirement, is central to this tax. It is upon this legal command that we come to understand the purpose and intent of this tithe. 
In order to understand this legal requirement for joy, we must examine the provisions of this tax in the light of its central theme of rejoicing. This tax was not paid to any central authority, institution, or organization. It was to be retained and used by the taxpayer. He was the steward of this tithe of the Lord, and he could use it for, quote, whatever thy soul lusteth after. Deuteronomy 14.26 The only restriction upon his use of these funds for his enjoyment was that they could not be used for violating the, the word of God. For this reason, he could use it, quote, for wine, or for strong drink, or for whatsoever thy soul desireth. Verse 26. One of the reasons that the taxpayer kept possession of this tithe was because every man and his family have different ideas and tastes in regard to what is joyful. No central authority or organization could possibly anticipate the desires of every person and family in the theocracy in this regard. Therefore, the taxpayer and his household were to be the stewards of this tithe. In addition to the taxpayers using these funds for himself and his household, he was required to remember, quote, the Levite, the stranger, and the fatherless, and the widow that are within thy gates, Deuteronomy 16.14. The local Levite was required to be remembered, quote, for he hath no part nor inheritance with thee, Deuteronomy 14.27. It should be remembered that the Levites were not exempt from the payment of the social tithe, Numbers 18.20-32. Since God is no respecter of persons, Acts 10.34, it is reason, reasonable to assume that they also were required to pay the rejoicing tithe as well as the poor tithe. Also, the Levites were not the poor of Israel. They could more easily afford to pay this tax and the poor tax than the other tribes could. The Levite was to be remembered not because he did not pay this tax or because he was poor, but because he had no part nor inheritance in the land. His inheritance was the Lord and his law. Thus the Levites represented religion and law in the theocracy. For this reason, they were to be remembered at this feast, as well as at the giving of the poor tithe, verse 28 through 29. Because all Israel was to recognize that no area of life was to be divorced from God and his word. The local Levites were to accompany the local families in, to Jerusalem in order to impress upon everyone's mind and heart the principle that no area of life and thought was non-religious. The funds that the Levites received from the taxpayer were more symbolic than substantial. These small symbolic sums were the means which would reinforce the belief that all of life was religious because all of life was ruled by law. In addition to the tithe payers remembering the local Levite, he was also required to remember, remember the local stranger and the local poor. Unlike the social tithe, Neither the rejoicing tithe nor the poor tithe were required to be given to believers. The reason is that the social tithe was to be used to capitalize those who were developing the implications of God's word in every area of life and thought. Hence, the social tithe could be given only to those who were believers in God and his law. But this was not the function of the rejoicing and poor tithes. The rejoicing tithe was to force the Israelites to fear God by forcing them to remember their deliverance from Egypt. Leviticus 23, 41-43, Deuteronomy 14, 23. The poor tithe was to deal with one of the effects of sin within society. Therefore, both tithes could be used as a means for evangelizing the faith. By using some portion of the rejoicing tithe with the non-believer, the believer can impress upon the non-believer's mind the lordship of Christ. If the non-believer accompanied the faithful to the great city and participated in the Feast of Tabernacles, he could not help but see the implications and joys of the faith. He could not avoid confronting the issue of redemption and salvation, 
since this feast celebrated Israel's deliverance from the house of bondage, which was Egypt. The poor, in turn, were to be remembered because they, too, were to rejoice with the rest of Israel in this historical celebration of deliverance. If they did not have sufficient funds for their own rejoicing taxes, then some assistance had to be provided for them. It had to be provided because God required all males, regardless of their wealth and status, to appear before him at Jerusalem. No man was to be exempt from the historical celebration of God's deliverance of Israel. The assistance provided the poor and the stranger did not necessarily come out of everyone's rejoicing tithe. On the contrary, the thrust of this tithe was not to help the stranger and the poor, but to rejoice before God. There is no indication in Scripture that anyone was to use this tithe for others if it would greatly curtail his own rejoicing before the Lord. To understand this, we must recognize that this tithe was to be paid by every person, family, association, and business that had any increase. No one was exempt from paying this tax. Also, this tax was required to be used over a one-week period and could not be used to capitalize oneself. It was to be used solely for rejoicing and for no other purpose. Deuteronomy 14, 22-27 Therefore, those persons, families, associations, and businesses who had more than sufficient funds for their own rejoicing for this one week would be encouraged to share their largesse with the strangers and the poor of society. Thus, the responsibility for aiding the stranger and the poor would tend to fall on the wealthier segments of the theocracy. This is what actually occurred in the Middle Ages. The lords would tend to share their bounty with the local church and community since they felt this was their responsibility as leaders of society. The now defunct business picnic was an offshoot of the same principle. We can understand, then, that those who had large rejoicing tithes would tend to be obligated to assist those who did not. This, in turn, would tend to evangelize the faith and provide a sense of community along all the various elements and classes of society. We can see, then, that the requirement to, member, to remember the stranger and the poor was an obligation that tended to fall upon the shoulders of those who were especially blessed by God. The rejoicing tithe was composed of a tenth of, quote, all the increase of thy seed that the field bringeth forth year by year, Deuteronomy 14.22, and the firstlings of the herds, flocks, and trees, Deuteronomy 14.23, Leviticus 19.23-25. It was to be used at Jerusalem unless the great city was too far away. In such cases, the original form of this tithe could be turned into money, and then this money used at Jerusalem. Deuteronomy 14.25-26 The reason that the tax of the firstborn was required to be paid and then eaten at Jerusalem was discussed when this tax was examined. We learned from this examination of the tax of the firstborn that it was required to be paid because when God slew the firstborn of Egypt, he claimed ownership of all the firstborn in Egypt. Since he claimed ownership of all the firstborn of Egypt, God really claimed ownership of all of life. Also, the Lord's redemption of the firstborn of Israel was his claim that God alone was and is the Redeemer Savior of all of life. For this reason, the firstborn taxes were to be paid to God as recognition of his claim as owner-redeemer of man and his world. Also, the firstborn, or their monetary equivalent, were to be used at Jerusalem because this was where the office of the high priest was located. The high priest was the mediator between God and man and performed the duty of providing the atonement sacrifice for all Israel. Therefore, the firstborn had to be used in the shadow of this office to impress upon the minds and hearts of the Israelites the knowledge that God and his Christ delivered the Israelites from the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage. 
From the foregoing, we can realize why God required the Israelites to dwell in booths during the Feast of Tabernacles. Quote, Ye shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days. Ye shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 23, 41-43 This living in booths would bring to remembrance their deliverance from Egypt by the hand of God. It would force them to see the Lord as their only Savior and Redeemer. Since the rejoicing tithe was to be used at this feast, we can recognize that going to Jerusalem and this dwelling in booths was for the purpose, quote, that thou mayest learn to fear the Lord thy God always. Deuteronomy 14.23 They were to learn to fear God because they were to learn that they were totally dependent upon God for their deliverance from the house of bondage. This fear was to act as a check upon their desire to return to Egypt, to return to their bondage of sin and corruption. This fear of God, in turn, would be the beginning of their knowledge of God and of his word. Proverbs 1.7 it would, it would be one of the means to induce them to learn of God through his word or law. As they learned to fear God, they would learn to live in terms of his law. And as they grew in their obedience to his word, God would bless them in all their increase and in all the work of their hands. Therefore, they were to rejoice because such rejoicing was to be their testimony before God and man of their deliverance from the land of bondage. Deuteronomy 16:15. This act of rejoicing on the part of the Israelites was a legal requirement imposed upon them by the word of God. Quote, thou shalt observe the feast of tabernacles seven days. After that thou hast gathered in thy corn and thy wine, and thou shalt rejoice in thy feast. Deuteronomy 16, 13-14. This act of rejoicing was obligatory. It was not an option for the faithful. They were required to be joyous because this joy was their testimony before God and man of their redemption in Christ. What is involved in this requirement is the juridical principle of joy. To understand this principle, we must recognize that all of God's laws are obligatory upon man and carry with them blessings for obedience and cursings for disobedience. This is the message of the 28th chapter of Deuteronomy. Quote, and it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all his commandments which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of earth, and all these blessings shall come on thee, and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Verses 1-2 through two. If man obeys the laws of God, then he cannot avoid the blessings that God will bestow upon him. Quote, but it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes which I command thee this day that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. Verse 15. If man repeatedly disobe disobeys the Lord, then he cannot avoid the effects of God's wrath. Man will be sent into slavery because of his refusal to, quote, live by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Deuteronomy 8.3, Matthew 4.4. 4. Moreover, man must not only obey God, he must enjoy obeying the Lord. Failure to do so will bring the cursings of God upon man. Quote, because thou servest not the Lord thy God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart for the abundance of all things, therefore shalt thou serve thine enemies which the Lord shall send against thee, in hunger and in thirst and in nakedness and in want of all things, and he shall put a yoke of iron upon thy neck until he have destroyed thee. Verses 47 through 48. Joy is not a small matter to God. He requires it of his creatures. 
for us to see our calling in Christ as one of travail, hardship, misery, and distress is a denial of Christ. But for us to see our calling in Christ as one of, quote, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, Galatians 5.22-23, full of, quote, joy unspeakable and full of glory, 1 Peter 1.18, is to affirm that Christ is both Lord and Savior. Joy affirms our faith in Christ, and this brings us the blessings of God. Lack of joy will testify to our lack of faith in Christ, and this, in turn, will bring us the cursings of God. We can understand this from the original creation of Adam in the Garden of Eden. Adam was created by God as a creature who was to think God's thoughts after him. Adam's preoccupation was being what he was, a creature of God who desired to obey the law or word of God. Since this was what he was created by God to do, this brought him joy. This joy, in turn, testified to him and the Lord of his faith in God as both Lord and Creator. It also testified to him of his creation in the image of God. The more Adam grew in obedience to God, the more joyous he would become. And the more joyous he would become, the more he would strive to obey and know God in his word in every area of life and thought. Hence, we can understand that Adam could only have joy as he obeyed God's law since he was created by God for this purpose. And every time Adam experienced joy, this would testify to him and to his Lord that he was obeying God since he could only have joy as he obeyed the word of God. Joy for Adam was a response that came as a result of his fulfilling the purpose and destiny that God had established for him at his creation. It was a response that came as a result of his having dominion and subduing the earth by the law or word of God. Thus, we can understand that from the very beginning that joy was founded upon a legal or juridical principle rather than on a metaphysical condition. When Adam fell, joy fell with him. The reason for this is that Adam no longer wanted to be a creature of God. His desire was to be as God, to determine by his own word or law good and evil for man and his world. He wanted to be Lord over all creation. But Adam could not, nor can man ever be, as God. Prior to the fall, Adam's desires corresponded to his abilities. But after the fall, his desires did not correspond to his creaturely powers. His every effort was directed to this one end, to be something that was impossible for him to be. Just as a butterfly can never be happy attempting to be a man, neither can a man ever be happy attempting to be his God. Neither the butterfly nor man were created by God to be anything other than what each is. Therefore, joy fell with Adam's transgression of the law. The law of God was now a curse to Adam because it continually testified to his lack of ability to achieve his desired ends. That which had been established for his good and for his joy in the Lord was now the condemnation of his life and purpose. Joy, then, is in principle impossible to those who desire to be as God. When Christ came into the world, he reestablished the juridical principle of joy. His birth, death, resurrection, and ascension for the sins of the saints reestablished the covenant of God with his people. Those who are, co are the called of God are in the covenant of Christ. Since they are in this covenant, their desires are no longer to be as God, but to be creatures in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 their desires have been restored to their abilities, not fully since no man in this life is fully sanctified. But, in principle, the desires of the redeemed man are to serve God by obedience to his every word. Hence, joy has been restored to the elect because their creaturely desires and ambition correspond to their creaturely abilities. The law of God is now no condemnation to them. Romans 8.1 
but is the means by which they can have, quote, joy unspeakable, 1 Peter 1.8. They can now strive to fulfill the, the requirements of Adam's original calling, to have dominion and subdue the earth by the word of God. They can serve, quote, the Lord thy God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart for the abundance of all things, Deuteronomy 28.47. By doing so, they will have continuing and ever-increasing joy. In turn, this continuing joy will testify of the redemption in Christ and of his lordship over them. Therefore, we can understand the juridical principle of joy. Joy is the result of our obedience to the law of God and our witness before God and man of our redemption in Christ. Joy testifies that Christ is our Lord and our Redeemer. For this reason, God puts great emphasis upon the requirement that his people have joy. Joy is his witness to them that they are his children by the adoption of grace. It is his testimony that redemption is only possible through the work of Christ and not by the works of men. Hence, God established the rejoicing tithe to reinforce in the minds and hearts of his children the principle that the Christ of God is the only Savior of man and his world. God alone delivered Israel from the house of bondage, from the land of Egypt. Therefore, every year the children of God were to rejoice with praise and feasting over their deliverance from the corruption of sin. Thus, we can understand that the purpose of the rejoicing tithe was to impress upon the heart and mind of man the principle that God alone is both Lord and Redeemer. The basic obligations incorporated in this tithe are 1. That all firstlings of all animals and trees, or their monetary equivalent, are to be used. 2. That approximately one-tenth of all increase from all other sources are to be set aside for rejoicing once each year. 3. That the ministers of God, God's word, are to be remembered with a token sum from this tithe. This is to impress upon the mind of the taxpayer and his family the fact that all life is God-centered because all of life is ruled by his law. 4. That the poor and stranger are to be remembered if possible, with some of these funds as a means for evangelizing the faith. And five, that this tithe is to be used solely for rejoicing before the Lord and cannot be used to capitalize oneself. The rejoicing tithe has not been abolished. It is as binding upon the new Israel as it was upon the old Israel. Now, however, our high priest is Christ, who dwells at the right hand of the Father in heaven, rather than in Jerusalem. This tithe, therefore, no longer has to be used at a central location. It can be used at any location since our Lord rules all the earth from his throne on high. Our Lord's office as mediator between God and man casts its shadow across the face of the entire globe, and no area is separated from his atoning work. Therefore, each household can decide for itself where it will use this tithe for its rejoicing before the Lord. Moreover, this tithe need not be used for re religious conferences or the like, since all life is religious, because all of life is to be ruled by the word of God. It must always be remembered that the rejoicing tithe is for the purpose of rejoicing before the Lord and his Christ. It is for the purpose of establishing in the heart and mind of man the juridical principle of joy. That principle is that Jesus Christ alone is both Lord and Savior of man and his world.